We're in Exodus 27 now. Um, we're spending a lot more time on the tabernacle stuff than I ever thought. And, and last week and this week, both weeks, I thought, now surely we'll finish the tabernacle as I sat down to, to put them to surely we finish it this week, and actually we won't finish it this week. Uh, but maybe next week we will. So there's, there's just too much... There's too much in here as I'm as I'm digging here that uh, I, I think is is really fascinating and applicable for us. So I, I want to take the time. After all, we're in no hurry. After we're done with this, we're just going to be taking another book of the Bible anyway. So I, I just uh, <laughs> thought let's let's just dive in while we're here. Um, so uh, we're in God's giving Moses the instructions for the tabernacle and in uh, this part of Exodus and then at the end of Exodus they actually construct it. Um, it's a portable tent-like structure that can be moved around in the wilderness. In Hebrews it explains the significance of the tabernacle. It's a model which reflects heaven and the church, the high priest being Jesus, the most holy place being the church, our ministry, we are the priests, and uh, the, I'm sorry, the holy place. The most holy place is, represents heaven, the throne room of God. The holy place is the uh, where the, the, the three elements are, the, uh, the ins- altar of incense and, and the showbread and the, uh, um, the lampstand. The, the, the three elements there, that's where we are right now. We are the priests, and of course Jesus enters, the, the high priest who enters the most holy place once for all time with his own blood. The veil of the temple is the body of Christ. So this is all explained to us in, in Hebrews. So, uh, And we also discussed before, God's very specific about numbers, dimensions, materials, colors even. He... <laughs> very very specific he wants it done a certain way and so it's for a reason and and, and that's for us to dig out and and uncover why all these things are in there so specifically so in the tabernacle itself we have the most holy place and and the holy place the two rooms and uh in in the holy place we talked about last time you have the uh, the priests would minister in there. There's the golden altar of incense, table of showbread, the lampstand, and then as the priests are looking around, they're seeing the angels. They're seeing the cherubim around them there. We talked about that last time. So we talked about the most holy place. We talked about the holy place. And then you know, all this love to talk about to, to talk about still is the courtyard, which is the, the outer area. Uh, that was, there were two things that it talks about are in the courtyard. And these aren't, described necessarily in the order that I would put them in in Exodus. They're just described in, in random places. I'm trying to, as an engineer, I'm trying to do things in an organized manner here. So so we're taking the third part, which is the courtyard. And there are two things in the courtyard. There is the laver, uh, like a wash washing basin, which is really right in front of the tabernacle. And then behind that, you have the... Um, uh, the the bronze altar of sacrifice. So you have two altars. There's the golden altar of incense, which is inside the tabernacle, and you have the bronze altar of sacrifice where they would kill and burn up animals, animal bodies. There are parts of animals. So that's uh, that, the, the two altars. So I want to talk about the courtyard here. It's like, like, what's that all about? So try to think in your mind, okay, what we know so far 
what is the courtyard likely to represent and what are these elements in here likely to represent. So we're going to start reading Exodus 27 and I'm going to take things slightly out of slightly out of order. Um, so I want to talk about the courtyard first and then I want to talk about the two things that are in the courtyard. So I'm going to start about start with that verse start verse uh, 9 here. I'm reading from the Orthodox Study Bible. It will be a little different in other Bibles that you, that, you, that you may be reading from. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, verse 9, You shall also make a court for the tabernacle. For the west side there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, a hundred cubits long for one side, and its twenty posts and their twenty bases shall be bronze. The hooks of the posts and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the east side shall be curtains 100 cubits in length with the 20 posts and the 20 bases of bronze and hooks and posts and their bands of silver. Along the width of the court on the north side shall be curtains 50 cubits with their 10 posts and 10 bases. The width of the court on the south side shall be curtains of 50 cubits with their 10 posts and bases. The length of the curtain on one side shall be 50 cubits with their 3 posts and 3 bases. On the other side shall be cubits of fifteen cube shall be curtains of fifteen cubits with three posts and three bases. For the gate of the court there should be a veil twenty cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet fabric, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four posts and four bases. All the posts around the court shall be overlaid with silver. The hook shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits on each side and with 50 cubits on each side. And the height, 5 cubits, made of fine woven linen, its bases of bronze. All the utensils and instruments and all the pegs of the court shall be bronze. So that's, that's a lot, pretty hard to process here. So let me just, let me simplify it. All right. This is the, uh, so the courtyard... Just to, to visualize it here, uh, as we mentioned before, a cubit is, you know, basically your elbow to the tip of your finger of, of some average person living at that time. So it's give or take 18 inches, half a meter, something like that. So 50 cubits by 100 cubits, that's, uh, you know, for, for Americans, that's 75 feet by 150 feet. Or for everybody else in the world, it's about 25 meters by 50 meters in, in round numbers. Okay, so give you give you an idea of how big the thing is. Uh, and this area is separated. Israel is camped all around it, four sides, the three tribes to a side. So this, this, this area here is cordoned off from everything else. It's basically a, a, a curtain. So we've got a, uh, I think in my, if you want to hand me the, uh, the, uh, the long, uh, there you go, that guy right there. So this, so this is it. So just a easier to see it than for me <laughs> to read it. So this, this is the idea here. All right, this is the uh, all around the outside. It's talking about the dimensions, 100 by 50, and you've got the, the entrance at one side on one end here. Uh, and so there's only one way to get inside, and the, the tribes are, are uh, camped all around it. And you can see this is the courtyard area. There's the bronze altar, and then there's the labor there. And that's really all there is in that area. And this is the tabernacle itself. Okay, so really simple. So it's a, you can see it's a, it's a, it's a temporary structure, and there are posts that are in bronze bases, and they're holding up bars. And then the bars are holding up hanging curtains, which are five cubits high. So figure five cubits high, 
that is seven and a half feet or significantly more than two meters. So basically you're standing outside, you can't look inside. All right, it's like a construction site where there's a, a fence around the outside. There's no windows, you can't look inside. So a uh, bit, bit of a bit of a mystery in there, and there's only one way to get in. So, so that's basic, basically, uh, the the idea of the structure. So, this is another curtain-like structure. And uh, some of you may have noticed when when I was reading this from the Orthodox Study Bible that the that the uh, the north-south orientations are all flipped by 90 degrees in the version I was reading from versus the version you may be reading from. So I noticed that because I always thought that, well, it's, it, as I always understood it, it was, a, it was oriented east-west with the opening on the east side. The Orthodox Study Bible explains it differently. Everything's off by 90 degrees. And so I was checking other versions of Septuagint, and this is, uh, this is just a... It's a combination of two unusual things. One is this, this particular Septuagint translation is based on, on one manuscript, which is different from the most. And the other thing, which you may find it hard to believe, but it's true, is I looked up the word here in, in verse 9, where in my translation it says, for the west side there shall be hangings in the court. And what does it say in other translations, like every other translation that's out there? Verse 9. I think it says on the south side. So somebody have another another Bible that they're reading from other than Orthodox Study Bible. All right, I've, I've switched, moved everybody off into that, that camp. So, all right. So most most Bibles it will say west side, and 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 this Bible says south side. So I looked up what's the word in, in the Greek mean, and it says it means it it, it says here it means. I looked up in a, a Greek lexicon for the Septuagint. It said it means south, but sometimes it means west. So I was thinking, wait a minute. South and west are two totally different directions. How can you say that? And in, in the ancient world, you know, they hadn't, they hadn't sent the dog sleds to the North Pole yet. So their, their, their idea of geography, they didn't have GPS. and, and they didn't. So when they, they're talking about geography, the east is, oh, that's where the sun comes up. And the west is, oh, that's where the sea is. Well, you know, if you're living in Palestine, that's, that's basically, that's how you describe it, all right? So that's a, it's, they're describing things differently. Now, of course, if you're in one place versus another place, the sea is different. I, th- I think that the, the word that they use for uh, the west or the south, depending on where you are, uh, was something like you know that's 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 where the hot wind comes in from from that direction there and of course if you're in Egypt that means one thing if you're in Palestine it means something else so it, it just puzzled me how in the world can you end up with two different translators translating the world one translates it west and one translates it south and the word that particular word could mean either one depending on where you are but most translations have it off. 90 degrees from, from what I just read. So it's an it's east-west orientation with an opening uh, on the east in almost every Bible, including most of the, the versions of the Septuagint. It's just, they're just, I mean, some of the strange things that I <laughs> I find, run into, because uh, I'm asking questions of, wait a minute, I, this isn't the way I remember this. So, uh, so, so, so uh, continuing on here, the, um, and you notice the, uh, everything in this in this courtyard here, the bases are bronze; they're not silver, and all the implements in here are bronze; they're not gold. So this is an inferior metal from everything that's in the tabernacle area. So, question for you: so Let's think about this question. If 
The most holy place represents heaven, the throne of God. One step out, the holy place represents the church, and we are the priests and, and, and who are ministering in there. Okay, what's the third step out? The courtyard, what does that likely represent? Now, only the priests can come into the tabernacle, but as you saw from the picture there, all kinds of people can come into the courtyard. You don't have to be a priest necessarily to come into the courtyard of the tabernacle or the temple. So what do you think that represents? So it just, I'm just trying to think that God's designing this all for a, for a reason or for a purpose. So uh, uh, I, I would think it seems logical to me that um, uh, these are those who, who may be approaching God, but they're not priests. All right. Um, they, they it would represent the world. It would represent the world. Those who those who are not priests and the, the priests are the Christians, and uh, the priests are mingling with everybody else. But then they go into the tabernacle, so they're 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 in the world. But then but then they're also completely separate from it both. So that that's a picture, a picture of it, and it's also reflected to me in the inferior materials. It's bronze instead of of gold. So. Uh, we notice there are two things in the courtyard, and that's the only two things that are mentioned in Scripture is just those two things. Now, maybe they had some little tables for slaughtering animals off on the side, but those are the only two things that Moses was told to make there, the bronze altar and the bronze laver. So a uh, question that I would have, that you may have as well, is what's that if everything represents something, everything's really specific, what do those two things represent? So I want to take a look first at the bronze altar. So let's back up and read the section that we skipped over, starting in verse 1 of chapter 27. It says, Now you shall make an altar of incorruptible wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square. Its height shall be three cubits. You shall make horns on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make a crown around the altar, its cover, its libation bowls, its flesh hooks. <coughs> flesh hooks. Wow, that's a, that sounds pretty, pretty, pretty graphic. Okay. Its incense bowl and all its utensils you shall make of bronze. You shall make a grate for it. Its network. Uh, of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put them below under the grate of the altar, that the grate may be midway up the altar. So you shall make <clears throat> poles for the altars of uncorruptible wood, overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to carry it. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it was shown to you on the mountain, so you shall make it. So, once again, God gives him an image or a picture, yeah. uh, you know, 3D model, whatever on the mountain. So he says, you make it just like I showed you on the mountain. That's exactly what you make it. And he gives a lot of specifics. So, um, I'm picturing this as, this is like a, uh, you know, think of a, of a barbecue grill, where you've got a grating here. You, you, know, you put, put, the, put the flesh of the animal and you burn it from below. I'm thinking something like that. You're going to have ashes when you're all done. There's going to be smoke, ashes, uh, burning. Uh, smell of roasting meat, uh, all, all of that. So, and, and, and then there are the flesh hooks for moving the stuff around on, on the fire. So, uh, and, and apparently there's something to do with incense here as well. So, uh, 
that's the picture. Now, there's one detail here that isn't mentioned that, that I, I find fascinating about the bronze. There, that there's there's, a, a, there's an, a, an unusual story, an unusual story about the bronze that goes into making this particular altar. And let's look in Exodus chapter 38 where it talks about when they actually construct it. So first he gives them the instructions and then later, later on they actually build it. In, in Exodus chapter 38, starting in verse 22, he made the altar of bronze from the censers used by the men engaged in Korah's rebellion. He made of bronze all the utensils of the altar and also its grate, its base, its bowls, its flesh hooks. Uh, as an appendage to the altar, he made a network under the grate beneath it as far as the middle of it, and he fastened four rings of bronze to the four sides of the appendage wide enough for bars as to carry the altar with them. So it's a little more description here, and it says he made it with the, um, the censors of the people involved in Korah's rebellion. That is a rather colorful story, and this is... Uh, I don't know. This is a story. We have some some children in, in the in, in the lesson here. This is you could say this is kind of a children's story, but it might be the kind of story that keeps children up late at night because it's so graphic. So uh, let's turn there in in Numbers chapter sixteen, just to appreciate the bronze. What, what people would when people saw this this altar. Uh, after that time, I want you to be thinking what they were thinking when they saw it. So there's a lesson that's packed in in this little detail here about why. Um, so, uh, you know, I was trying wrestling with, should we wait till we get to Numbers to cover this? But I think we're here right now. Who knows if we'll ever get to Numbers 16. <laughs> Let's just go for it. So, uh, and it's a, it's a, let's say, a very memorable story, all right? So this is, is a memorable story, and it's even talked about in the New Testament, too. Uh, Numbers chapter 16, verse 1, Now Kor, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Iliab, and on the son of Peleth and, and, and of Reuben spoke, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 men of the children of Israel, rulers of the congregation, chosen members of the council, and men of note. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, Let it be understood by you, all the congregation are holy ones, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the congregation of the Lord? So imagine the scene here. Moses and Aaron are completely outnumbered. Uh, Korah, who is the leader of this insurrection, is a Levite. So he is, he is from a prominent family here. And he's gathering other prominent people and, and leaders and respected people from the whole community. It's 250 leaders going up against Moses and Aaron. To give you, just try to imagine what this is like. Uh, and they're saying, look, you're not the only holy ones here. We are too. And, and uh, you know, basically they want to take over. Verse 4, so when Moses heard this, he fell on his face 
And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, God examines and knows who are his and who are his holy ones. And he brings them to himself. And those he chooses for himself, he brings to himself. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire and incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man the Lord chooses, this is the holy one. And let this be sufficient for you, O sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear me, you sons of Levi. Is this a small thing to you that the God of Israel separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near himself, to serve the liturgies of the Lord's tabernacle, and stand before the congregation to serve them? And then he brought you near, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you? Are you seeking the priesthood also? Thus you and your company brought together are against God. Furthermore, who is Aaron that you should murmur against him? Then Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Iliad. But they said, we will not come up. Is this a small thing that you brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert and set yourself as ruler over us? Even if you should bring us into a land flowing with milk and honey and give us an inheritance of fields and vineyards, you put out the eyes of these men. We will not come up. Then Moses was very heavy of spirit and said to the Lord, May you pay no attention to their sacrifice. I have not taken a desirable object, a desirable object from any of them, nor have I harmed any of them. Then Moses said to Korah, Sanctify your company and be ready tomorrow before the Lord. You and they as well as Aaron, let each take his censer and put incense in it and bring his censer before the Lord. 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of testimony with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah gathered all his company against them at the door of the tabernacle of testimony. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. The Lord then spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation. I will utterly destroy them at once. Then they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, if one man sinned against the Lord, anger uh, beyond all the... Con- uh, uh, if one man sinned, will the Lord's anger be on all the congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Withdraw from around Korah's company. Moses then rose and went to Dathan and Abiram. And the elders of Israel went together with him. Then he spoke to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of these callous men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you perish together with them in all their sin. So they got away from around Korah's tents. And Dathan and Abiram went and stood at the doors of the tents with their wives, their children, and their little ones. Then Moses said, By this you shall know the Lord sent me to do all these works, and they're not from myself. If these men should die naturally like all men, or if they're visited by the common visitation of all men, the Lord has not sent me. But the Lord will show by a sign from heaven that opening its mouth, the earth shall swallow them down with their houses, their tents, and everything that belongs to them, and they shall go down alive into Hades. Then you shall know these men provoked the Lord. Now as he finished speaking, all these words, the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened and swallowed them down with their houses, all the men with Korah and all their tents. 
So they and all the men went down alive into Hades, and the earth covered them, and they perished in the midst of the congregation. Then all Israel around them fled at their cry, for they were saying, Lest the earth also swallow us down. Fire also came out from the Lord and consumed 250 men offering incense. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, Take up the copper censers out of the midst of those burned up and scatter the strange fire there so as to sanctify the censers of those sinners, even the censers of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives, and make them into beaten plates as a covering for the altar so they might be brought before the Lord and sanctified to become a sign to the children of Israel. And Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest took the copper censers which those burned up had brought and they added these as a covering for the altar as a memorial to the children of Israel that no outsider who is not of Aaron's seed should put incense before the Lord and be like Korah and his insurrection as the Lord said by the hand of Moses. So what a terrifying story. I mean, can you think of a more horrifying scene in all the Bible where Moses says, if you people die, a normal death, then God hasn't sent me. But if something really extraordinary happens, then I was sent by God and you're rebelling against God. And and the earth, the earth opens up, swallows these these, uh, insurrectionists, these rebellious men alive, and then the earth closes back up over them. And then God sends fire down and incinerates the 250 men who tried to offer incense before the Lord. And he says, you know, these people were Levites. And uh, uh, many of them were anyway. And uh, he said, I don't care if you're Levites, you're not priests, and, and you can't do that. So, uh, And then after it happens, God makes a memorial of this. He says, I, want, I don't want anyone to ever forget this. I mean, think, of, think about Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt as, as, a, as a memorial or the... The, 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 the 23,000 who died in a single day sinning with the Moabite women, that's, that's a memorial for us. These different things have happened. Sodom and Gomorrah the, 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 being decimated and just, just fire and smoke ascending like from a furnace. Just is, they're, they're different monuments in the Old Testament to sins that we are supposed to look, learn, look to and learn from. And this is another one here. God says, I don't want you to ever forget this because whenever you look at the bronze altar, what you're going to see is the censers of those rebellious men who offered strange fire before me and who, who, who uh, tried to rebel against me. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a terrifying reminder. So when you think about that, obviously they built the... This happened sometime after the tabernacle was built. So while they were, so, so my assumption is that they, they then went back and they covered over the, the uh, bronze altar with the censers of these men. So, uh, and actually this is mentioned in the New Testament as well. So, is there's, is there's a lesson not only for them, but for us too. In Jude, he talks about this.
is a warning about terrible things that are going to happen in the church and, and false teachers are going to rise up and, and, and lead people astray. And it's a, a short letter, but it's all, it's all warning. And it's a warning saying, look, these things happened in the past too, so don't be surprised, don't be blown off course or think, well, how could this possibly happen today? In Jude, in verse 3, it says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness, deny our Lord God, uh, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, continues in verse 11, talking about examples of, of people who were punished in the past in the Old Testament. And verse 11 says, Woe to them! They have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily into the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, there are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust. They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you there'll be mockers in the last time who walk according to their ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause division, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So, uh, the New Testament is filled with warnings from Jesus and the apostles, uh, Peter, Jude. It's filled with warnings about terrible things that are going to happen in the church. And the idea is look, Horrible things happened in the past. We're supposed to learn from that. The story of Balaam, the story of Cain, the story of Korah's rebellion. These things all happened in the past. The angels who rebelled in the days of, 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 of Noah. So we should expect this. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be blown off course. And we shouldn't be surprised, including if it seems like everybody's going that direction. I mean, think about... Moses and Aaron with 250 chosen promised leaders all opposing them saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And Jude says, we need to contend for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. The original faith that was handed down by the apostles. Take no exception to this. Don't change it. Don't mess with it. 
preserve it, protect it, defend it, and expect that people are going to come along and try to, any unpopular part of it, they're going to try to explain it away. Religious people are going to come. People are going to come into the church and explain away things they don't want to deal with. They're going to explain away things that they don't want to deal with on, on the permanence of marriage, on what the Bible says about the role of women in the family and the church, Okay, what, what the Bible says about, um, uh, you know, whether it's something, something like head covering, uh, what the Bible says about sexual purity and sexual immorality and homosexuality, all these things. So across the board, we shouldn't be surprised if we see prominent chosen people rising up and basically trying to steer people away from what was handed down by the apostles, because it was always the case. But as we look at these things around us and and see the same things being repeated, I hope that uh, we will look back and remember the bronze altar and remember the censers that were pounded into a covering for the altar, that every time that the Jews went and came to offer on that altar, there was a reminder for them of don't be impertinent and go against the word of God and, and think that just because you got a, a lot of prominent people on your side that God cares one way or the other. Some other things, we talked about this uh, in, in an earlier lesson, I want to touch on it again just because we're talking about the altar here in, in Hebrews chapter 13, just a review significance of the altar for us. Start verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. Consider the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about by various and strange doctrines. It means teachings. For it is good that the heart be established by grace and not which foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, let him continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So the priests are going out into basically the world there. They're going out into the courtyard, and they're offering the sacrifices of the people on the altar. And it says, we have an altar that they don't have the right to to eat from. Don't be carried off by strange teachings. So stay on track. Stay with the word of God and the faith that was originally handed down by the apostles. Remember that we are priests who are eating from a greater altar than the one that they ate from. And our sacrifices, the ones that he talks about here, include bearing the reproach for the sake of Christ. That when we're speaking out and standing up and speaking out what the word of God says and what the truth says, 
we will be reviled by other people. We should expect that. That's one form of sacrifice. Another one is praising God. The sacrifice of we should be constantly praising God every day. We have so many things in the nature of God to praise Him for His goodness, for His mercy, uh, for His deliverance, and thanking God for all the blessings that He has given to us, offering up that sacrifice also. And then the other one, it says, sharing with those in need, that God is pleased with those sacrifices. That's the kind of sacrifice that God is looking for from us as priests today. So we talked about the, the, the bronze altar. I want to talk about the other thing that was in the courtyard here also. And let's turn to Exodus chapter 30. Verse 17. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, with his base also of bronze, for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of testimony and the altar. It's referring to the bronze altar. You shall put water in it, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and feet with water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of testimony, they shall wash with water, lest they die. Or when they come near the altar to minister and offer the whole burnt offerings to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and feet with water when they go into the tabernacle of testimony, lest they die. It shall be an ordinance forever to them, for him and his genealogy after him. So this was a rule. They put the labor outside, they wash their hands and their feet before they go in, and if they didn't do that, God was going to strike them dead. So God was very serious about the washing before they went into minister in the temple. Uh, in Exodus 29, uh, they are told to wash in the very beginning when they are consecrated, and then, and then again whenever they go into to minister in the, in the altar, which we just read. <clears throat> in Exodus 29, starting in verse 1, now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them for ministering to me as priests, to serve me in the priesthood. This is talking about Aaron and his sons. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, unleavened loaves kneaded with oil, unleavened cakes anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket, bring them in the basket with the young bull and the two rams. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of testimony and wash them with water. Then taking the garments, you shall dress Aaron your brother with a cloak, the ephod, the full-length robe, the oracle. You shall attach the oracle, the ephod, uh, for him. You shall put the mitre on his head, the sanctified golden plate on the mitre. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put the robes on them. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and crest them with turbans. Their priesthood to me shall be for a continual ordinance, so you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. So this is, a, uh, this is the ordination or the consecration of the priests in the very beginning. So there's, there's a sacrifice, there's washing with water, and uh, then there's the uh, anointing them with oil and then putting the special robes on. We'll talk about the robes uh, next time, some of the significance that's there. So, they have to wash 
before they become priests. And just a wild guess. Anyone have any guess what that might possibly be referring to? What that might be alluding to? Why that was in here? You got to wash before you become a priest. Uh, and and well, we're going to put that right outside the tabernacle before you go in. You got you got to wash to become a priest. Okay, everybody's smiling in here. Well, I was looking at a Protestant ex- explanation of the typology of the tap of, of the tabernacle, and they got everything right except this one here. They said that the washing must represent confessing sin. That's probably what it's about. Okay. So what do you think? Maybe something comes in mind that involves water. I don't know. But uh, uh, so I, I will. I'll offer the the thought of Tertullian. He's a he's a writer in the in the two hundreds from North Africa, early Christian writer, and he's got a work called On Baptism, which will give give away uh, right off the bat what he thought this was referring to. And he it's a fascinating work, not just for the theo- his theology on baptism, but also just kind of how he saw the foreshadowings in the Old Testament of so many things in the New Testament. Here he's talking about baptism, and he's explaining. He says, look, it's all over the Old Testament. It's, 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 it's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. He says, this is, this is how can anyone even question this? This is so clear. Um, and he answers some of the objections that he, he heard in, in his own day as well. Um, so the, 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 the practices church, in the beginning, everyone understood that was, uh, baptism was for the remission of sins, and then it would prepare someone for the reception of the Holy Spirit. The sins are, are forgiven, and then the Holy Spirit can uh, can enter the person. And uh, so the practice in the church, the common practice of the church beginning, was that after someone was baptized, uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they would be anointed with oil and, and have hands laid on them. So Tertullian is talking about baptism, and he makes this comment. He says, look, he says, after this is, so, so put yourself in the perspective of his explanation with the early church. He says, after this, and he had just described being baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we have issued from the font, this, that's the place where the person is baptized, we are thoroughly anointed with a blessed unction, a practice derived from the old discipline, wherein on entering the priesthood, Men were wont to be anointed with oil from a horn ever since Aaron was anointed by Moses. Whence Aaron is called basically the anointed one. That's in Leviticus 4 5 and 4 16. And, and the Septuagint refers to Aaron as my priest, my anointed one. So the, the word, the same words used, used for Christ. It just means the anointed one. Uh, from the chrism, which is the unction, which is made spiritual, furnish an appropriate name for the Lord because he was the anointed one with the Spirit of God. So saying Aaron was referred to as the Christ, the anointed one. He was foreshadowing as the high priest, the Christ, the anointed one, who, who uh, Jesus. Uh, he was anointed with the Spirit by God the Father, as written in the book of Acts, for truly they were gathered together in the city against uh, the Holy Son whom you anointed. Thus too, in our case, the unction runs carnally, that is on the body, but profits us spiritually. In the same way, the act of baptism to itself is carnal, that means it has to do with our flesh, and that we are plunged in water, but the effect is spiritual that we are freed from sins. That's in the, uh, on baptism, it's uh, chapter 9, and then I see Fathers, volume 3, page 672. So um, he, he, it's fascinating to me, Tertullian is explaining this was a foreshadowing of baptism, is that the priest had to wash, and then he'd have the oil 
poured on him. This is being born again of water and the Spirit. He says this is a foreshadowing of, of Christian baptism and receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gives some examples from uh, other parts of Scripture. He talks about Noah's Ark, uh, which Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 3. And then he gives two examples from Exodus, from two other examples from Exodus, that uh, I thought were, were fascinating. So he's talking about the crossing of the Red Sea, which we discussed previously in this lesson, but I'll, I'll share with you what he said about this. So he, he gives three examples a baptism from Exodus. So this is, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10, but here's what Tertullian says. He says, How many, therefore, are the pleas of nature? How many the privileges of grace? How many the solemnities of discipline? The figures, the preparations, the prayers, which have ordained the sanctity of water. First, indeed, when the people set unconditionally free, escaped the violence of the Egyptian king, by crossing over through water. It was water that extinguished the king himself with his entire forces. What figure more manifestly fulfilled in the sacrament of baptism? The nations are set free from the world by means of water. To wit the devil, their old tyrant, they are leaving quite behind overwhelmed in the water. So this is this is the picture here. This is now in our day, Back in, back in that story, that, that the evil king was destroyed by water. In our day, that for people all over the world, that the devil, their evil tyrant, is destroyed by the water in the same, the same way. So he talked about that story in Exodus, which we've already, already discussed. And then another one from Exodus chapter 15, he says, Again, the water is restored from its defective bitterness to its native grace of sweetness, by the tree of Moses. And he says that's foreshadowing uh, Christ turning the bitter water sweet uh, in, the, in the story of the, uh, when the people came upon, after they came out of Egypt, they, they happened upon the water that was undrinkable. Moses threw the, the piece of wood of the tree in there. Um, and then and Tertullian, I'll, sh- I'll share this just because we're, we're, we're talking about this, the subject of baptism and water, the labor. And he gave an interesting analysis of Jesus for anyone who thinks, well, what does water have to do with salvation? And he turns to the importance of water throughout the ministry of Jesus. And I'm, my profession is been a water engineer, basically. That's, that's what I am. I do you know, water, drinking water, water pollution. I'm a water engineer. So I studied water chemistry, microbiology in water, uh, fluid mechanics, water in pipes, water running you know, over the surface. I studied water, physics and chemistry, I think water, but I thought this is a really good discussion about water here. So it says, uh, how mighty is the grace of water in the sight of God and his Christ for the confirmation of baptism? Never is Christ without water. If that is he, okay, if that is, he is himself baptized with water, he inaugurates in water the first rudimentary displays of his power when invited to the nuptials. That's the wedding feast in Cana. He invites the thirsty when he makes a discourse to his own water. And he approves when teaching concerning love among the works of charity, the cup of water offered to the poor. He says even you just give a cup of water to, to the, uh, the poor child. Uh, recruits his strength at a well. This is the woman at the at the at the well in Samaria, 
walks over the water, willingly crossing the sea, ministers water to his disciples, and that's John 13, he's washing their feet, onward even to the passion does the witness of baptism last. While he is being surrendered to the cross, water intervenes. Witness Pilate's hands. So Pilate is washing his hands with water as he, as he sentences Jesus. When he is wounded, out of his sides bursts water from the soldier's lance. This is when he's, when he's pierced, even in his death, blood and water come out. So he's saying, from the, beginning, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, from his baptism by John, to his first miracle, all the way to the end, water is everywhere in his ministry. So he's saying we shouldn't be surprised that water is involved in the plan of salvation. That's also from chapter 9 in, uh, in, on baptism. So fascinating uh, discussion in that book. I encourage anybody to uh, take a look at it. Uh, so many references to baptism. You know, we talk about baptism as a burial with Christ, as a new birth, but it's also a spiritual washing. It's described that way. In Titus 3, it's the, he saved us through the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hebrews 10 it says let's draw near with a true heart having our bodies washed with pure water uh, Peter we talked about this earlier in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 he says somebody who's become a Christian and going back to their old life he described as like a pig who's being washed who goes back to wallowing in the mud so this is I think this is a reference to baptism somebody's been cleaned up and washed off but then they dive back into the old life of sin. It's a perfect figure for that. And then Paul in Acts chapter 22, Ananias says to him, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away. So the idea of baptism is a washing that takes place. I think of the priests who had to wash initially, and then they wash their hands. Uh, they, 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 they wash their, their hands and feet uh, going in. I remember in John 13, Jesus says... Um, to Peter, he's, he's washing the disciples' feet, and Peter says, no, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So we had better be washed by Jesus. And, and he says, someone who's had his whole body washed only needs to wash his feet. So, okay, once you've had your whole body, Peter says, well, wash me all. He says, look, you've already been washed completely. You just need your feet washed at this point in time. So I think, I'm thinking about that. I'm going to think about they washed initially, but then every time they went in, they had to wash their hands and feet again each time. So, uh, but so those of us who have been baptized may think, well, I've already checked the box on that one. I've already, I've already taken care of the washing. But not only did they have to wash initially, they had to wash every time they went in there or God would strike them dead. Well, what's the application for us? Well, it says in 1 John chapter 1, let's read that. Starting in verse 5. This is the message we've, we've heard from him and declared to you. God is light and him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ's son cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the initial washing, just like when they first became priests, is baptism. As Tertullian made the connection, baptism and, and, and they received the Holy Spirit after that. Um, however, after our initial cleansing, when our whole body has been, been cleaned, we still need to wash our feet every once in a while. But not just physically, to wash it spiritually. It says that if, if, condition, if we are walking in the light, the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us. So we have that cleaning going on. But if we sin, and it says everyone does, if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I have a question for you. When was the last time you washed your hands? So we're in we're in a you know COVID situation right now. I see signs all over the place. Make sure you wash your hands all the time and you know wear a mask and you know, all this stuff. But people I was taught as a child, wash your hands before you before you have dinner. And I'm, I'm out working outside. A lot of times I get really, really dirty. So I wash up before I eat. So I wash my hands several times a day. And I would not consider, and I think Allison would agree with me, I would not consider myself to be a cleanliness fanatic. Okay? So, so I'm not a dirty person particularly, but I'm not, I'm not obsessed. I'm not, I'm not like washing my hands and all, all the time. But, but uh I wash, I wash several times a day, physically, because I can see the dirt on my hands and I don't want to get it in my mouth, okay? You know the question that's coming next. When was the last time you washed yourself spiritually? Okay, so you've been baptized. That's wonderful. When was the last time you washed your dirty hands and feet spiritually? When was the last time you confessed your sin to a brother or sister? James 5 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So, not only do we need to wash Initially, we need to be washing regularly when we come to approach the Lord. So I, 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 this is it's a challenge. I want, I want you to answer that question in your mind. When's the last time I washed my hands physically? When was the last time I washed my hands and my feet spiritually of confessing my sin like it talks about in 1 John? Because if we want to be priests before God and we don't want to be struck dead, we need to make sure that we're clean. Amen.